This is Corolla Digital. Hey, you guys, it's me, Allison. I just want to say thank you so much for listening. If you like what you're hearing, which, let's face it, you do, tell a friend. You can listen to us all sorts of places. A couple of them would be iTunes or AllisonRosen.com. Allison Rosen. Hey everyone. Hi. Hello. It is me, Allison Rosen. Welcome to another exciting episode of Allison Rosen is Your New Best Friend. I'm sitting here with writer Alan Salkin, who is the author of From Scratch, Inside the Food Network. That's the name of the hardcover, but it just came out pretty recently in paperback, right? And From now, Scratch, From Scratch, The Uncensored History of the Food Network. That's the paperback title. Yes. Or is that now just like the title? I like it's a better title, so now it's the title. Okay. Now, was that your idea to change it? <clears throat> well, and who's doing the censoring? <laughs> when the um, who's doing the censoring? Oh, God, you know, I I once asked the Who a similar question. Like uh, they they had this ad for their new tour, which was um, un un. Um, oh, I can't remember this damn story that I'm telling you. Well, I get no the one's gist. doing the censoring. Right. So basically, I went in when the paperback was coming out. I went in there and said, "Maybe we should change the cover. Maybe we should have a sexier title." And the editor told me, "No, we can't do that. It's been approved up top. There's no way we're doing that." And then a month later, they said, "You know, we have a great idea for a new title and a new cover, and it was way better." Mm-hmm. And normally, I complain about everything along the entire way of the process, but <laughs> I was like, "That's better. I'm not going to complain." And that was the uncensored history of the, the uncensored Network. history. It sounds like. Um, it's more racy. It sounds – it does. It sounds gossipy and dishy and it sounds like it's the story they don't want you to know. Yes. And the, the truth is it is the story they don't want you to know because ever since I've written the book, The Food Network, even though it's a mostly positive story about uh, you know the 20-year kind of business history and cultural history of the network, the people at the network are acting like I wrote Mein Kampf. Really? Yes. Well, that's okay. So I definitely want to get into all that. And it's kind of fortuitous that you're on the show because Guy Fieri has come up a lot of late on my podcast. Now, do you call him Chris Maxipata or just by his real name? Thank you for even knowing about that. It took me a second to even remember that he has another name, Chris Loxamana. I call him Chris Loxamana. If that's I what say I thought, because I've been name. listening to your podcast also. And yes. Yeah, you don't, you don't adopt the Adam Carolla names for the, all the like Gary Haftard and et cetera, et cetera. I like to offer them sanctuary. I, I feel that way about your show. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. But um, I, know, I know Chris is obsessed with Guy Fieri. Yes, he's a big fan. So we need to talk about like what he's really like because I've heard that he's different than the douchebag that he seems to be. Well, here, here's my argument. I knew the douchebag thing was going to come up, okay? Mm-hmm. I know, no, predictable in that Well, way. number one, I want to say that, you know, people have – almost forgotten what a douchebag is. It's just become this term like you're a jerk. And um, it was, a, oh, it's a sound effect. Do it again. Never mind. Okay. Um, no, <laughs> nice. but like a, a, a douchebag spends a lot, if I'm not mistaken, a douchebag traditionally spends a lot of time around vaginas. So what's wrong right. with that? Okay. You could call him a puss hound. Okay. So, I feel like we're describing the same kind <clears throat> of guy though. But a puss hound uh, is not a douchebag. A puss hound is somebody who likes... Vaginas. Right. And who cheats around and does right. anything. Uh, where a douchebag is just, oh, he's like a douchebag. Yeah, putts. Right. Anyway. Good point. 
Here's my argument about Guy. You know, he um, but spends time around stinky vaginas. Well, that is true. Yeah, but it makes them clean theoretically. Although it turns out douchebags aren't actually they're good not for good you. for the pH, no, right? That's right. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I see out, outside the studio there's a giant poster of, of Evil Knievel. Yes. Guy Fieri's childhood heroes were Evil Knievel and Elvis. And that is who he is. You know, before he was famous, this was a guy who as a kid had a pretzel cart in his hometown of, you know, in uh, Northern California. He, um, you know, worked his way to a year abroad in France selling pretzels. And his childhood heroes were, were um, Evil Knievel and Elvis. He went to um, uh, UNLV for hotel school. He worked for a restaurant chain in Southern California. He had a, a, a propped up truck and had two dogs named Rocky and Sierra. He is a huge American character. And here's my question. If Guy Fieri was born, if the full manifestation of what it is to be Guy Fieri is to be the ultimate douchebag caricature. And Are you he, saying he's like the Lady Gaga of food stars? Yes. If he's, he, he's, he's performance art? He has or fulfilled, the NWK? No, he's not. He is who he is. It's not ironic. He yes, was born. That's the problem. He was born to be a giant douchebag, and he is manifesting what he was put on the earth to be. Therefore, he's not a douchebag. He is. He is almost like the Dalai Lama. He is a fully right, manifested being. Yes, he's self-actualized. Now that said, he does have like you know. It's always talking, he does have a lot of bodyguards around him. Yes. Did but you those, hear us talking about yes. that? Yes. Okay. But it's true. You know, you hang. There's these like but seven why? foot guys. Why does he have them? First of all, those are like his buddies from you know oh, that he, okay. they're always around him. But that said, if you go into a restaurant and there's some celebrities around, okay, people, especially in L.A., they will they will give deference. They don't you know go up and bother you know even DiCaprio, even maybe Adam. But if you're <laughs> right, stars like DiCaprio Adam. and Adam, I know you love it. So, um, but if you're a food star, people feel so connected to you because you're like cooking food for them. You know, they talk about, oh, I had Bobby's stu- jalapeno stuffing for Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. or they feel so connected. So they go right up to. They have no um, sense of propriety or anything. Right. In going up well, to I them. think I was making that point on my show that actually maybe it is hard for him to get around because I know that being around Doug Benson who you wouldn't think is, you know, the most famous person in the whole world, but people feel such a familiarity with him. It's it's hard to move through a crowd with him. That's true. And now, but that said, sometimes those bodyguards are used for douchebag pr- purposes. There was one time I was at a food festival up in, I, I had to go to a lot of difficult places to report this mm-hmm. book about all the food stars. I had to go to places like um, the Cayman Islands, <laughs> Miami, Pebble Beach. And so one time up in Pebble Beach, I was sort of sitting with the whole, you know, celebrity food people. You know, as a journalist, you never am I am I part of this posse? Am I just pretending so they'll they won't throw me out so I can get good yeah. material? That weird. It's, your, it's always a weird having to take stock yes. of like having to be situation situationally aware, but trying to blend in, but trying to not change the story and that it's whole weird. thing. It's yeah. weird. Yeah. Do I like them? Do I not? Do they yeah. uh, do, they, do like they like me? me? Why do I care if they like me? I shouldn't care. I'm really here for the reader. But if they don't like me, they'll throw me out. You know. Yeah. And so I'm sitting there like on the edge of a bench. And I guess Guy's wife was somewhere within like six feet of me. And so the next thing you know, one of the big guys kind of like prods me very sharply in, in the chest and says, why don't you get up and move? And mm-hmm. um, and I look, look up, you know, that's Guy's wife over there. And I look up and Guy is turned around facing the other direction. So clearly, but were his glasses facing you? Yes. <laughs> so clearly he had told his bodyguard, 
move that guy away from my wife, right. but I don't want to have anything to do with it. Right. Dude, that's a douchebag. I think so. All right. So we need to get into that. We need to get into all the other personalities. We need to get into um, what what made you want to write this book and all that. But first, let's figure this out because we were beginning to talk about this before. So we kind of know each other or know of each other from both being writers in New York, where you still currently live, although you're from I'm from here Calabasas. and, and, and working, thinking about coming back, yeah. Oh, well, that's a whole topic yeah, too. Yeah, let's do it. Um, but we were trying to figure out – so I guess – we don't. We did not actually know each other. Know each other. We just knew of each other. I was worried I was going to walk in here and you were going to say, you know, I met you once at a party and you were a total dick to me. Oh, is because that the kind I've, of person you are? I used to be more like that. Oh. I like to think I'm not anymore. So that I was, I was seriously worried you were going to like have a photo or something of of some of me. I don't know what, but um. No, I think we just ran in the same circles, knew all the same people, like struggling writers in New York City in the 90s and early 2000s kind of thing. But you were writing for New York Times, right? I, and I, I started out of the New York – my first real good newspaper job was at the New York Post, which people think of as like the National Enquirer. Mm-hmm. But it's actually – you know if you live there, it's got really good stories in there. I did a lot right. of good well, Yeah, I was going to say a lot of good reporting. Oh, well, yeah. I, so I – after Time Out in New York, I worked at Page Six magazine, which everyone assumed, oh, so you then you know everything. And I'm like, I do not because I work at Page Six magazine, which is big features. It's not the it same as Page yeah. Six. Page that was Six magazine. I don't know if it still exists. I, last I heard, I think it was occasionally – it was like yeah. a supplement or something. I don't know. It did have a, a little run as an actual magazine for a short while. It's not as juicy. Right. It wasn't as juicy. Yeah. Page six is still, you know, it's a great mm-hmm. read. It's amazing. So I worked there in the 90s. I did do a lot of investigative reporting. I worked with a guy named Jack Newfield who did a, lot, a book about Robert Kennedy. And so a, a lot of good stuff. And then I eventually when I left there because I didn't want to be a lifer at the New York Post, I was freelancing for the Times. Um, and, and you did a, a lot of sort of cultural trend pieces. Yes. My most, well, my most recent famous trend piece. Monocles? Yes. Monocles. (laughs) The popularity of monocles. I'm the guy. I'm the monocle guy. But what was your other, did you do something on like creative facial hair? I feel like when I was at Time Out New York, I think you had written some some kind of trend piece. I wrote something about how um, women were ordering steaks on dates. That was one thing I did. I also, well, my most famous piece was probably... I did. Just kidding. <laughs> One of the most, most famous pieces was about Annie Leibovitz's finances, the photographer, how she was going bankrupt. Don't Annie Leibovitz is a yes. Famous, no, I know. I'm trying. <laughs> that's not. I'm trying right. to I did a, a lot of. It was pieces. a similar similar to monocles. Okay, I did a piece Wrist about watches? men over forty in summer share houses. Um, oh my god, I did so many stories. I wish I could. Um, I'll look. I'll look at your stuff and I'll remember. I'll be like, oh, that's the one I'm thinking of. No, but what did you write about waterbeds? Well, I wrote about and I, I wrote about the guy who's basically like the last legitimate waterbed salesman in the San Francisco Bay Area, Roland Formica. Oh, I like that. I do sleep on a waterbed now. Do you really? I, I, I've heard you talking about beds. Yeah. Waterbeds are the best. Now, there's all these things people think, oh, it's going to leak. It's going to break through. None of that ever happens. That was just when for like – When you sign a lease, you always have to no, say whether you have one or it's not. It's illegal to have that. And by the way, that was like a, a thing in sitcom writers would use. Oh, the waterbed broke and so something, you know, hilarity would ensue. Uh-huh. I've never had a problem. I live in a, like a fifth floor walk-up old tenement building and the waterbed has not crashed through the floor. How do you fill it? You – there's a connection you make to your sink with a – and you have a hose – doesn't getting in and out of it, isn't that difficult? The new waterbeds aren't as sloshy. Okay. Yeah, I've, I only know the old-fashioned sloshy kind. I've also had what I like to call Congress on the waterbed right. with a member of the opposite sex. And it, How'd that go? It's not a problem. Is it kind of a problem? 
No, in fact, it's good. It's very good on the knees. I find it hard to believe it's like not a problem at all. My waterbed is very is sort of it has this like wave reduction, these beads in it, so you don't. You wow, don't, beads in your waterbed. Yeah. So is it giving you like a is it like a massage? Is no, it the, just it just what it does is it means so if you push down on it, the waves don't continue going back and oh. forth; they just stop. It's actually quite firm. If you want you, that, you could just get a mattress mattress. No, this is you get into this, you never move once the whole night. You sink in the perfect condition. It's basically what they're doing with the air beds. So it's like the, a temp it sounds like a It's like a Tempur-Pedic except but it's better. Water. Yeah, and you can and it's warm if you want it to be. It has a little that heat. That sounds in it. nice. That does sound nice. I recently slept on an air mattress over Thanksgiving, which I hadn't done before. I want I I so want to hear about the trip to Tucson. I didn't know if it was okay to talk about oh, yes. cuz you're going to Well, I want yes, I I want to Okay, but let me just finish mapping out where I want to talk, what okay, I want to talk okay. about with you, though. Okay, so now we figured out we didn't actually know each other, but we knew of each other. But I want to know the whole story of how you got into journalism and all of that and what, what made you want to write this book and all that. But anyway, real fast, air mattress. It's only comfortable when someone else is also lying on it because you sink in, but then as soon as the other person gets on, then it's like a horrendous teeter-totter of a mattress situation. But at least then there's a little more like thing kind of puffing you up. You also need a heavy like mattress pad because otherwise all of the heat in your body gets completely sucked out because there's nothing in there to retain your warmth. That's what, how a mattress works. It, it, I didn't you even get know this. warm eventually in your little cocoon in there. Right. But basically on an air mattress, you've got vinyl and then you've got air. Yeah. It's sort of like being on an inflatable raft, but it's just more inflatable. I'm not a, a fan. Mm-mm. I'm disappointed, very disappointed, okay. <laughs> that your in-laws provided you only with an air mattress. Well. You don't want to, you don't want to say anything bad. I like them a lot. I like them a lot. Did you, so, in fact, have your own bathroom as was promised? Yes. Yes, we did. Wow. I'm... I'm uh, flattered that you've been <laughs> listening so keenly. Um, yeah, I like them a lot, so I don't want to say anything negative about the air mattress. And in fact, I think some people, my husband being one of them, actually like an air mattress. They'll say things like, it's not as bad as you'd expect. One person, but a two-person air mattress? That's what I'm saying. I was surprised that it was more comfortable when we were both in it. But it was a lot smaller than our regular bed. Oh, my God. So That's horrible. I know. All right. So you grew up out here. Yeah. Well, I was born in uh, – I was born in New York. I grew up in uh, – when I was nine, the family – my dad was basically a baby toy salesman. And uh, he would come out here uh, in the 70s and, and notice what everybody else noticed when they watched the Rose Bowl, right? It's nice out here and it's cold in New York. And uh, so he moved us out <clears throat> here. And so I did go to – grew up, went to high school here, Calabasas High. I went to Berkeley and then eventually did this and that and went back to New York to go to journalism school thinking I would stay for two years. And it's been, you know, 15, 20. Mm-hmm. And when did you get into journalism? When you went to Berkeley, what did you study? I studied political science. Um, all my friends became lawyers, so I just sort of did the major they did. And mm-hmm. then at the end, I, I actually started studying American lit. I thought I was going to – well, I, I basically graduated in the slacker era um, – and I was trying to write poetry and very bad <laughs> short stories. I was trying to write good short stories, mm-hmm. not trying to write bad ones. Right. And uh, some of them were good. Um, and uh, and uh, drifting around this and that, I was doing telemarketing. Um, what for, were you selling? Um, at the best, I was selling like tickets to a Baroque orchestra, not not out of money, but Baroque in the era, <laughs> right? And um, 
They and so actually, it's very good training for a journalist because you do a say, lot of phone interviews. Yeah, you got to win people that, over. Yeah, and cold calling yes, and all that kind of stuff. Yes. Um, and so I, I, it wasn't, you know, I was earning in those days like $600 a month and that was actually enough to live in San mm-hmm. Francisco. And, um, but eventually I'm a fan of the Olympics. I've been to like nine, 10 Olympics. So I always divide my life up by which, so I went to Barcelona in 92. I came back to San Francisco. I was a ski bum for a while. I ended up working for my dad down in LA and selling rubber duckies. Does he sell all kinds of baby toys? Um, yes. He sold, um, Passed away like a year and a half ago, but he sold um, a lot of schlock that went in dollar stores, like dollar kind, 99 cent baby. I mean, different. That was his towards the end. He also imported those stuffed animals that go in the crane machines. Oh, wow. Yes. So that the, actually the crane machine business put me through college. Because he would provide the toys he for the He provided the, crane the toys for the cranes. And, the, you know, and the, it, there's a very funny thing about the cranes because there's. If if they're in a touristy area, they they can tr- the operator can set it so nobody ever wins. Hmm. But crane machines get reputations, and my father wouldn't make money if they could just fill the machine once and never. Have to, it was bad, so you'd have to if you were in a location like a you know a pizza local pizza place, you'd have to allow people to win once in a while, or else word would get around town that it was a crooked crane machine. Right, so it can be set yes. so that just occasionally... So that, you know how the claw, sometimes it yeah. like it's, pulls the toy up and just, just when it's about to move, to, it, like, it drops, drops it. it. Yeah, yes. that's a setting? Yes. <gasps> the sort of the, the tensile strength of your That's a book right claw. there. I know. It's a scam. <laughs> or a page in a book. <laughs> More like. So, tell am I talking about? So anyway, I, um, I when I was working for my father, I, I kind of was hanging out with a lot of the people in the sort of, um, you know, variety business trade and dollar stores. And I thought these, I wasn't that interested in it. And I, and I decided to take a writing class at UCLA over the summer. And um, it was either script writing, which everyone was doing, but the, the Saturday morning journalism class fit in with my schedule. And um, I, it was great because I got to write for the summer UCLA Bruin newspaper my first story was about a garlic festival, not the famous one. The, there's one in the, veter- the parking lot of the Veterans Building. <laughs> and I got in for free. I got to meet the garlic queen who was like this extra in Russ Meyer movies, <laughs> um, tall Amazonian blonde. And I got to go to the front of the line and eat stuff for free. And then I wrote about it. And this ex-girlfriend uh, from college was working at UCLA that summer. And she saw it. And so I was like, well, let me get this straight. I'm writing all this poetry and stuff. And nobody- and this this thing about the garlic festival, I get free food, I meet the garlic queen, it impresses women, and I get published. So this is better. <laughs> so eventually I, I wrote, uh, applied to journalism schools, I got into NYU, they gave me a free ride, and that's why I moved to New York. But had you always had a unique way of looking at things, or had you always noticed something? And I say this in like a... Yeah. a self-aggrandizing yes. kind of way as also as a writer I think from a very young age I would notice things other people weren't noticing and I just assume that that's part of it I, it takes a long time until you realize that the rest of the world isn't as sensitive or isn't as seeing things the way you are I thought everybody was having that um so it took me a long time to realize and uh I I think yeah, I think I always had it. And I think I was always also, you know, reading the paper front to back and obsessed with journal, you know, with, with that kind of writing. But I was more thinking I was going to be Henry Miller or, you know, somebody like that. Mm-hmm. 
So I didn't go to journalism school. You don't have to. Yeah. What What did you learn there? Did you know anybody in the journalism business, though? No. Hmm. Well, I, I like, you know, I didn't either. My, you know, my father is a rubber ducky salesman, was a sort of high achiever in his family. And um, so... Well, ultimately what I learned was, you know, you know when you walk into a class and it's like every word from the teacher, you're like nodding. And it's mm-hmm. like you know it already. It was just like confirmation that, oh, you can do this. This is something you are going to be good at. All of a sudden, all your classmates aren't quite getting it as fast as you are. So right. it was almost a confidence builder. And then also, you know, they talk about connections. Um, one of my professors was Nancy Hass, a very good freelance writer. And she was writing for the New York Times style section. First of all, I got the internship at the New York Post out of uh, journalism school. I was working there for like six months for free. And that led to a job. Mm. And I was working on a story for an investigative reporting class on the cracks in the sidewalks and who's supposed to fix them. (laughs) And that turned into this realization that the city of New York was paying like $40 million a year in – you know, liability uh, lawsuits because of that. And that story, which I was doing for a class, ended up being a front page story in the New York Post. Unfortunately, it didn't make it to final edition because I, I think um, Dean Martin died, which is unfortunate and also right. unfortunate for me. Yeah, bad timing. Yeah. But then um, – and then – and Nancy Haas eventually uh, – was running for the New York Times and she got me my first uh, connection there to write a freelance piece for the Times in like the early 2000s, which was my first piece was about living with robot dogs. <laughs> Do you think journalism can be taught? Do you think writing can be taught? Well, uh, I mean... Oh, you teach writing, don't you? I, no, well, I don't really teach writing so much as I teach hustling. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what it is. I, it's like, you know, we're talking about Gabriella Gershenson, who you worked with at the at the Time at New, Time York. At New York, and Jordana and Rothman, and um, you know, there. What I taught them was not how to write. It was like there's a new editor. If you read the trades, you'll notice there's a new editor at New York Press. And he's, he just got hired from like the Prague Alt Weekly. I he, wrote that, for him. <laughs> yes. That means he doesn't <laughs> know anybody. In the, I don't know. I'm sorry to hear if he did. Or if he didn't, then what great news. Call us. <laughs> 1-800-ALLISON. Um, but I said, this guy just moved to New York. That means he doesn't know anybody. You need to call him tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And that is, right, that's what I can teach. Roster, yeah. Like just push, push, push. Um, you know. Well, that's because I was thinking. Of, it's funny. I was actually thinking about. On my show sometimes, it's come up a couple times, this thing where you imagine if you had some job that wasn't yours and then if you were being interviewed about how you do that job, which is just a weird sort of flight of fancy that as a young kid I used to do. Like I used to imagine if I were a teacher, this is how I'd do it. And then if I were on Good Morning America being interviewed about what a wonderful teacher I am, here's my thing. But so I was imagining if I were like a lecturer talking about how to do interviews or if I were writing a book about interviewing or I just started thinking because I've been interviewing for so long as may or may not be evident now when I'm talking about myself. I'm sorry about this. I love it. But I started thinking if I were to really sort of drill down like what are the key components of interviewing, you know, what would I try to get across? And then, I, you know, I was thinking that as a journalist, it's there's the two parts. There's just the writing talent, but then there's all the actual tricks of the trade and all the actual fundamentals of it. So that's what I'm wondering. You know, does journalism school give you that? Do they ever explain like here's how to interview and here's 
you know, like back when I was was really a full time journalist, I was using cassette tapes, and yeah. now it's just moved so far ahead, and now it's just. I don't know what it is. Actually, I asked David Wilde what he uses to record interviews because I've been doing some pieces for Bon Appetit where I have to do interviews again. Oh. Um, and now I just use the voice memos on my iPhone and then put it on speakerphone. That's how I record them. Here's a, a trick. If you do your interview via Skype, voice even, you can. there's a program called Audio Hijack where, which will record every sound that comes through your computer. And uh, it's very – that's what I use. Is that what you do? Yeah. But um, but I also don't record a lot of interviews. It's yeah. a pain in the butt. But the transcribing them. is a yes. pain in the butt. If you and also, <laughs> I mean, well, I'm not going to say. But you, if you record it, yeah, it's a pain to listen to the whole thing again. It's mm-hmm. just faster. Sometimes the good quotes just stand out. You just hear them. But if I it's a long interview, point, if I was if I were doing a profile, then I would want to have it recorded because it's not for me. It was always like it's not just about specifically the words the person said. It's like the whole feeling and the tone and how they sounded and all that. But if I were doing a piece about, I don't know what about, let's say chefs in the city or something. And I'm just getting a few quotes for this thing. Then that I would not record. Or for my like book, that. I had to record everything because these were like three, four hour interviews with Bobby Flay or Guy or whoever, and I needed the transcript because I needed every little scrap of everything. And in fact, one time that the, the wonderful thing happened um, where Sarah Moulton claimed, uh, who had a great show called Cooking Live on the Food Network, she claimed that she hadn't called herself Saint Sarah. <laughs> And I and I looked at the transcription, which somebody else had done for me, and it said it. And then I went back to the tape, and there it was. And I sent it to her, emailed her, and proved her wrong. What did she is, say? Was she upset? Well, with what I guess. Written? Yeah, oh yeah. She. Cause I would never think of myself as Saint Sarah. That's, you know, presumptuous. And I was like, well, I really think you said it, Sarah. <laughs> and I was right. Well, good. You know what else you could be right about? Oh, uh, some kind of box that you're going to tell us about, or some healthy. No, the different ad. Oh wait. No, read that I could, one. No, well, see, no, what I, I want to talk you're about. You're in charge here. I'm trying to be. Um, are you familiar with Sancerre? Are you familiar with sous vide? Yes. Right? Because, yes, I've talked about this before. I first heard of sous vide, which is a cooking method where you put – sous vide technically means under vacuum. It's a cooking method where you put food in bags, essentially, and then they're in a water bath, and they cook – for a longer time, but at a lower temperature than you would cook on the stove. A lot and of it, hipster chefs are using sous vide now. Yes. But I think I first heard about it when I was at Time Out in New York because I think that it had been written about. So I've known about it forever, but it used to not be practical to do at home. It used to just be the kind of thing that, like you say, hipster chefs, molecular gastronomy, all of that sort of novel approach, using science more. Uh, I mean, all cooking is science, actually, but in a more hands-on scientific way. The temperature actual, kind of way. The inventor of molecular gastronomy, Ferran Adria, actually refers to it as refers to, prefers to refer to it as techno emotional cuisine. Nice. I'm stepping over your read. That's fine. Well, now you can bring it into your home because there's this company Sancerre that makes this device, so you can cook sous vide in your own home. And what you do is it's like a it's almost like a canister, and then you stick it into. Uh, you just find a pot at home that you can fill with water, and then you put whatever you want to cook. I've been doing chicken a lot, but you can also you can do anything. You can even do vegetables. Um, into I just use a Ziploc bag, and then you set the temperature, and they give you all the instructions. You lower it into the water, and then you just let it cook. And the thing is, it doesn't have to be precise. So I do it at I think it's 
Don't quote me on this. It'll come in your package. It's like 160 degrees for an hour and a half for white meat. And you can take the you can go watch TV or take the dog on a walk or do whatever you want because it's, you don't have to get it out at the exact right time because it won't overcook because the temperature is set. And then it's super tender and all the juices are in there and you don't get that. Like on a steak, it's perfectly cooked all the way through. You don't have that thing where it's overcooked on the outside and undercooked on the inside. It's pretty amazing that you can now do this in your own home. And my personal favorite thing is that after you cook whatever you cook, you just take it out, you have it in the bag, dump the water out, and then you're done. There's absolutely no cleanup. Uh, it's embarrassing. That's my favorite part, but it is. And special thing for you guys, my listeners, you can get your own Sansair for just 179 It's regularly 199 but you guys can get a special deal. So all you need to do is go to Sansair, www.sansair.com, S-A-N-S-A-I-R-E.com, and use the promo code Allison at checkout. So again, www.sansair.com, S-A-N-S-A-I-R-E. And use the promo code Allison at check off, check out, excuse me, for $20 off. Okay. All right. So you go to Berkeley, go to journalism school, then you go to the Post, and then what happens? Well, right when I left the Post, which was around summer of 99 or – no, summer of 2000, there was still this thing called like freelance journalism. And it's actually a little bit back now, but it died for about a decade. And – um I think that's when I got out probably. Yeah. Well, it was a good time to get out. But I, I right there, I got like an assignment for like $6,000, which was a lot of money, yeah. from Talk Magazine. Oh, right. Tina Him. Brown's little yes. – uh, with Harvey Weinstein's mm-hmm. deal. Uh, I wrote um, – What was the piece? It was a piece about a murder that happened in my high school um, in Calabasas, uh, sort of notorious – it's a, a complicated murder story involving a guy named Robert Rosencrantz. A lot of there was a lot of weird stories. Had you pitched it? Yes, I pitched it because I knew um, somebody, Vicky Ward, who was an editor at the Post, that had gone on to work there. I mm. think that's how it happened, and they never ran it. But I did get all my money, and it ran years Good. later in a magazine called Heeb. If you remember Heeb, yeah, magazine. I do. Wait, how did you get all your money though? This is for the couple people who are working in journalism these days who are listening, because oftentimes they'll give you a kill fee, which is not all your money. They didn't kill it for any reason other okay. than they just couldn't get around. It was just insanity. And then I, and I, I did something that I did learn about from my father, which was be a total asshole <laughs> and pushy and like do things like call, up, call somebody every four minutes, ring wow. their phone all day and just make myself To a try total, to get it. T- such an annoyance that published all Published or to try no, to get no, your no. money? No, no, no. At this point, just get my money. Yeah. Well, that's always a hard thing. And I remember once I became an editor – realizing you have a writer contacting you trying to get paid. You actually have very little to do with – but that's but unfair I got, I got to the put writer. on to the guy yeah. who was the guy oh, who would release oh, the I money. Yeah. And, you know, at this point, the magazine was not, maybe not going to survive very long. And so right. I just wanted to get – the only one time ever that I didn't really ever collect, and it was a, a story for some crazy summer magazine in the Hamptons, and it was a profile of Kyle McLaughlin, mm-hmm. McLaughlin. I was just trying to figure out the other day because he passed me in a restaurant and I was like, it's Kyle McLaughlin, McLaughlin. (laughs) The guy from, uh, you know, all those shows. Twin Peaks. Yeah, Twin Peaks, Sex in the City. Um, And the funny part was during the interview with him, which was um, at some restaurant in Rockefeller Center, I bought him two glasses of Opus One, which were like $30 a glass. 
and I never got. So I ended up paying sixty dollars for Kyle McLaughlin. <laughs> anyway, I don't know, and I never got the money. They like folded up ship, and, and there's nowhere to chase bastards. I yeah, know. I actually went to the office, and the really? guy gave me a check, which I should have said demanded cash. But anyway, I'm not that big a guy. I didn't want to like punch anybody. Right. Raygun magazine still owes me money. Really? I believe. Do you remember that magazine? Spell it. It was R-A-Y-G-U-N. Okay. It was out here. There was a brief period of time where there were sort of hip music culture lifestyle magazines yes. that were based in California. Bikini was also one of them. So I had done a couple of reviews for Reagan and then they folded. There was another one edited by a guy named Steve Garbarino. I was out here. I can't remember. Oh, God. There's so many of these things. I know. I know. Anyway, so... What, what happened was I was freelancing. I also got a, this assignment from the Times to do the robot dog story. And then it just sort of – I never thought I'd ever get a staff job at the New York Times. I ended up doing freelance pieces. I got engaged. I didn't get, end up getting married. So I was in and out of New York City, living weird places. And um, eventually I did a story for the Times, a uh, uh, freelance story about the popularity of, of celebrating Festivus. Which, as you know, was based right, from, from Seinfeld. Seinfeld, which was a popular sitcom in the 90s for some of your listeners who might not know. <laughs> and um, that became a book eventually. And then just I just kept doing more and more stories And you did the that Times. book with Jerry Stiller, right? Jerry Stiller wrote the forward. Yeah, he was, it was a lot of fun. I was going to say, what's he like? He – you know what I learned from Jerry Stiller? He – when we were going to go on the Today Show – we're sitting there in the whatever dressing room, and I'm like talking to my publicist, chatting, and Jerry is just like going, like davening, like <laughs> uh, a Jewish, you know, like a rabbi, and and saying what he's, you know, sort of rehearsing his like spiel that he's going to give over and over again. You couldn't even Jerry, That's hello, so interesting, yeah. And it was just, and this what he, it was all about when the camera turned on, he was going to be ready. He didn't give a shit about. You know, being nice to people. I mean, he is a nice guy, mm-hmm. very nice guy, well known to be a nice guy. But, um, and also I'll say, visiting him and Ann Mira in their apartment on the Upper West Side, they've got like their staff, their like writing staff is in the apartment. <laughs> and it's, it's a little bit of a crazy show in there. I bet, yeah. Ben never stopped by and slapped me on the back or anything. That bastard, he owes know. you. He owes me. You I are feel, owed. I feel like a friend of the Stiller family, except Ben doesn't even know I'm alive. <laughs> All right. So, okay. So I was, so so I was writing. Oh, so, no, no. I know what okay. I wanted to ask. Mm-hmm. Um, why did you not get married? You know, I was at that point, I was in my, uh, at some point in my 30s. And um, <laughs> I, I, I had this feeling, you know, people always think women are the ones with the biological clocks. Mm-hmm. You know, I really felt like, well, I haven't really fallen in love since I was in college. And this seems like this thing isn't going to happen to me again. And I, I'm just going to be one of those guys who never quite decides and fumpers around. And so I might as well just say, okay, you who I'm dating, you're smart enough. You're good looking enough. I'm just going to fucking make this work. Oh, my God. That's the most unromantic story ever. I know. And then uh, what happened was eventually um, she kind of ultimatumed me and I wasn't really ready. But I said, yes, okay. And, you know, got her the ring. And, I mean, I remember having a very – I mean, she, I'm not saying her name. which is a very nice person. And she didn't deserve any of this. It's all my fault. Did she know, do you think? That for you, you, you know, were just like, well, I may as well do it. She, she used to refer to it as my struggle. You know, so a phrase that I like hearing these days is there's no victims. There's only volunteers. Mm-hmm. So make of that what you will. But – 
you know, I remember right, so that, absolving yourself of guilt. No, no, I, I take it on. I should not have done what I did, nor should I propose to her. I remember getting down on uh, on my knee on the beach and having this complete out of body. I was literally three feet behind myself, watching mm-hmm. myself propose, no feeling. And finally, I was thinking about the wedding day, and I was imagining. I was thinking about the playlist. Because I knew I would need certain songs to get me emotional. That I was not going to be <laughs> right, emotional without like Total Eclipse of the Heart or something. <laughs> <laughs> so then at what point did you realize? Uh, we were about, we were just right. sort of, uh, choo- we were going to have to put a deposit down on a room and it was probably five, six months away from the wedding. We broke up before, I mean, sorry, we ended the engagement and then, and then broke up a few months later. Mm-hmm. And were you I, guys living together? We were, we were on and off because she was, she was, um, at one point living in Northampton, Mass. She was a professor of sociology. She studied, I'm not going to say more, but she, um, and uh, then she was living in Oxford, Ohio, teaching at Miami of Ohio. So I would go there and live for like four or five months. In fact, that's where the Festivist story came out of. Like people in in, uh, Oxford, Ohio were having a Festivist party. So I would live there, try to, there's a book I've been trying to write for like 12 years that uh, I would work on when living out of town with her. And then I'd come back to New York for a few months and then i go back there. That's kind of how we did it. If you hadn't been imposing the pressure of marriage and all that on it, would you guys have stayed together longer or were you not right for each other? I don't think I was making good choices. I don't I, – I, I remember the first – I met her and then she came to a party. I was used to throw these parties every year. Um, and she came and I remember that as I was moving around the party, she was like stuck to me like um, one of those – I went once went uh, scuba uh, snorkeling in the Great Barrier Reef and there's one of these little parasite fish that like – A remora? Maybe so. It stays like a quarter of an inch away from your body the entire time. That's how I felt she – a remora is how I, she – I believe. I Look it up. I be- think it's a remora though. <laughs> That's a nice name for it. It feels right. So, um, you know, she was just close to me the entire party. And I remember thinking, wow, she's going to be hard to get rid of if I ever – it's a horrible thing. I know. Horrible. I am right. Don't it is not... Ramora. Oh, thank you. No, he's not. He was not nodding at me. You're a bad person. No, no, sorry. I was told to look something up. I was just <laughs> – He's nodding Ramora, at Ramora. I like yeah. it. It's, a, it's little, right? It's a little – Yeah, sucklefish okay. it says here. Sucklefish, yes. Yeah. And you can feel the suckling. It's kind of pleasant. Mm. And in her case, it was kind of pleasant. But um, anyway, I don't know. I, I – I don't – I think the, the result of ending that relationship and then some of the ways that I was compensating for – to deal with it mentally and physically um, led me to a major sort of life rebuild. And I told you earlier, like, you know, you if I expected to walk in and you say, I met you once in the <laughs> 90s, you were an asshole. Like, it – that is sort of the crucible and looking at my relationship life and my relationship to sex and all that that helped me to kind of rebuild, if you will, and just and to really change my whole outlook and, and you know, take responsibility. And I, I think I'm a much better person as a result of it. And if hopefully there <laughs> is a marriage in my future and um, that's where I'm at. I don't think I, I don't think I would have stuck with her as long as I – I think I would have just said, you know what, this person isn't right for me within mm-hmm. a couple of weeks if you hadn't what if i if i if i am if i was who i am now so to say i don't think we i don't know i was just trying so hard to, to me i like looked at her and i was like okay we're going to get this is the person i'm at the right age got to make this work so i don't mm. even know if i no that makes how sense can, how can you not think about whether you're going to get married oh well, you can't 
Right. Especially in New York where I think that it just kind of this not getting married thing can stretch on forever. So it just seems like instead of it being an organic thing, it seems like, oh, it must just be a decision that people make. I have this fantasy that things are different in L.A. with dating than they are in New York because I, I make – and I have do have – you know. I'm not all not, – not everything doesn't work out for me, but um, – <laughs> Wait, let me – not know. everything doesn't. So some things work Gary, out for you. Gary, can you work that out? That <laughs> sentence. Please diagram it. It looked pretty straightforward to me when Thank I first you. started. Thank <laughs> you. Um, but I don't know why they call you half-tart because you seem very smart to me. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, I, Give them time. What am I talking about? Dating? <laughs> oh, <laughs> Not the, everything doesn't work no, out. No, the, the amount of, of dates that I make in New York – where I say, okay, we're going to go out. Can Are you free? Oh, yeah, let's get together. Let's get together. And then it's like three weeks from now. Yes. And it's like, and I'll have to do something after. So you have like this like 45 minutes where someone, and then that morning, I don't feel good. And I'm like, okay, fine. Can we reschedule? Yeah, in like six weeks because I'm going on my, write my article about Machu Picchu. And then, and you're just like, you know, when you just, how are you ever going to get married? You're not making any space. And maybe I'm just a totally desire, you know, repulsive person. And that's no, why I don't think this. it's that. I don't think it's that. For me, I was really not dating very much in New York. And I'm, you know, I moved out. I have a hard time believing that. And, oh, well, thank you very much. No, but I really wasn't. And I moved out here and I met my husband pretty quickly. And I didn't think I even wanted to be in a relationship. But there was just something about him. We became friends first. And I, I was protesting anything more than that. No, well, that, that's not fair. That makes it sound like he was putting pressure on me, which he really wasn't. Um, but we were just, I really thought it would not be a good idea for me to get into a relationship when I, I'm living at my parents' house again. I just moved out. My whole life is in turmoil. Um, but then one thing led to another and we kissed and then we've been together ever since. I, I, there's something I don't that, think that would have happened in New York. There's, there, well, there's something that is pretty new that I'm sort of reticent to talk about in Rune. Oh, no. Do it. <laughs> Please. <laughs> well, I'll just, I'll just put it this way. Somebody who I have been seeing for about a month or a little longer, and I've been, I've been on this book tour for like three weeks, so I haven't been back in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, she just moved to the city, so she's not like ruined by New York yet. And it was the same thing. Like, I was like, I don't know. And she was like, I don't want a relationship. So that sort of lack of pressure allowed us to kind of enter into something. And get to know each other, right? Yes. And now I'm like, you know what? I think I kind of like this person. And and it's just like, I don't know. There's, I don't know if it's that we just, none of us wants to, we don't like to think we, I don't know what it is. We're just, maybe we're just like, I don't know. Uh, what's the word? What are, what are Tibetans? They move around a lot. What's the word I'm looking nomadic? for? Nomadic peoples. Maybe we all just want to be nomadic until somebody clubs us on the head. With... <laughs> well, I think you get to a certain point of being – But a certain I got point... to that point. Okay. And it didn't matter. That's not what I was going to say. What I was oh, going to say is a certain point of being – at a certain age and you've like been around it so many times that at that point it's like you almost – like what else is there to say? Because you've said it all before. I'm talking – I don't even mean to the person but like to yourself. It's just like, well, maybe it'll work. I'm not going to get my hopes up. I don't That's know. That's true. I don't know. Well, this lovely lady is probably pretty bored with you out here. I hope she has Hulu Plus 
because that's the best way to watch all the shows. Share the joy of the seasons this holiday by watching multiple seasons of your favorite shows on Hulu, whether you're home on winter break, traveling, staying with family this season, waiting for the guy you just started dating to come back from his book tour. You can watch your shows wherever you are with Hulu Plus. And right now, Hulu Plus has all the current season episodes, your favorite shows like How to Get Away with Murder, Once Upon a Time, South Park, all the past season episodes of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Archer, American Horror Story, Californication, Key and Peele, Parks and Rec, Rec, etc. You can watch full seasons of these great shows this holiday season. And don't miss Hulu's special one-month free offer. Hulu Plus works on your computer, smart TV, Roku, Apple TV, Xbox, Wii, PlayStation, pretty much any streaming device you already own. I'm watching a show that Gary recommended. I don't know if he actually recommended it. I just know that he enjoys it. And now I've been sucked into Revenge. Do you watch Revenge? That's not for men. Oh, I agree. I 100% agree. Okay. Watch with, excuse me, with Hulu Plus, you're in total control to stream as much as you want, wherever you want. Binge watch all the shows you're behind on or discover a new one for just $7.99 a month. Watch your favorite shows anytime, anywhere. But for a limited time, this is special, you guys. You get the one-month free trial when you go to HuluPlus.com slash Allison. But don't worry. If you've missed the deadline, Hulu Plus will still offer you guys a special two-week free trial as long as you go through my special link at HuluPlus.com slash Allison. So don't miss out on the special offer. Go to HuluPlus.com slash Allison, HuluPlus.com slash Allison, or you can click on the Hulu Plus banner on my website. Then they'll know that I sent you, and then they'll love me, which is kind of the whole point. Okay. All right. So you were potentially ruining the brand new relationship that you're in. Let's talk about the Food Network. Okay. What made you want to write this book? Although I do enjoy delving into your weird psychology, so we can also talk about that. I I, I want to come back and I want to be one of your regular crew. Do you know how I I love this? Oh, Um, thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, well... One of those guys, Kalen, never says anything. He thinks like you just slot him out and slot me in. (laughs) Is that Kalen right there? That's Kalen. Hi. Hello. Hello. There. Hello. Hello. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't talk much. Okay. All that right, was so, so oh, let's play the thing. That was Kaylin's Corner. Yeah, it was. That was Kaylin's Corner. Hello. Yay! The funny thing, if listeners don't realize that he literally, from where we're sitting, it's a little corner. Like he's in this little window. It's like he's in a tiny little Kaylin cage. Corner. (laughs) That's what I meant. Okay. So, well, why were you a dick before? Oh. Uh Oh. You know, uh, know, um, I think there's a lot of factors. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, oh, sorry. You're like, That's okay. I think you're, you interview like I do. What does you that around, mean? You like you you circle around and then <laughs> right, sting right in. Like I do Gentle, mean gentle, to. gentle. <clears throat> no, it's great. I love it. You're it's similar. Um, <laughs> it's this conversation with like with little stingers in it. Um, <laughs> I think first of all, you know. Th- I, I hate to diss my my now late father and my mother who still lives in the valley, but you know they were people who were very direct, mm. and I don't think I had a lot of training in subtlety. My parents never got shown to a table in a restaurant they liked, <laughs> never. 
and it, and you know it was too close to the bat. And I think their karma eventually led them to never being shown to a decent table. Right. But and their their way of complaining was so nasty about it. Um, I think that's what was modeled for me. I also think there's like we talked about before. You know, I think my perspective. I'm so. I hate to say I'm so sensitive, but I think. Everything felt personal to me. Maybe that's part of being a narcissist. You know, I think. Are you? I definitely have had shrinks tell me that, and it's something I work on, like to really engage with others. And I'm, I, I, I hate to say I'm so much better now, but I really, I can tell such a difference. Like I just engage with like you know the cashier or the whoever it is. I have a real conversation. I don't even think, oh, they're the cashier. I mm-hmm. just there's a person. But I because I'm like this now. I'm not not perfect now, but. I can remember when it was just like, oh, you are just the person who's – you are the thing who I have to deal with to get what I want. That's kind of just what my mentality was. And that wasn't just people in like going to stores and in your daily life in the service industry, but all people were like that It was that a too? lot of people. Yeah, a lot. You That's know, so interesting. What do I have to do to get what I want? And I don't even – but I wasn't even good at it because people mm-hmm. don't like being treated like that. Right. They they can tell, but I was so bad at empathizing with other the other human beings and thinking, well, they're on their own trip right now. They've got. I never thought about stuff like that. It's just so like you're someone... in my way. And even women I was dating, it's like, what game do I have to play? This is really really where I was coming from. What who do I have to pretend to be so you'll be nice to me and give me what I want? Never thinking, and it's always hard to like, who am I and. You know who am I really, and how do I be authentic? I mean, you get older, you work on this stuff, but um, yeah, it was just like what what show does what Alan show has to be put on to get what I want in this situation, and as, even as a journalist, sometimes. Well, that is the game with journalism. Yes, that's why I think I'm good at it. Some of it's been left behind. It's interesting. Do, when do you I think was the having listeners my, love me or hate me? Do I think they love you or hate you? Yeah. Um, I think they're turning a corner, and okay. now they hate you. <laughs> I don't know. It's so funny you say that because I was just imagining the comments that I'm going to get. Like I, I would like to. No, I want to think that people will say that he, you're really honest about who I'm you trying are. Trying to own it, yeah, but I, yeah, I, yeah. Well, so when I was having my shower fantasy of being interviewed about the art of interviewing, or no, this mm-hmm. is when I was giving lectures on how to interview. I think I was thinking, and this is not going to be a good story because I forget. It was like I was thinking that interviewing is like a cross between manipulation and something else. Maybe empathizing. Yeah. I don't think it was that, though. I'm trying to think what it was that I was thinking it is. But so anyway, okay. It's well, a so little that's bit of a journal- seduction. Yeah. Yes. But it wasn't I'm a cross between... I'm a way between- better journalist. I can seduce somebody in an interview way better than I could when I'm just like Alan Salkin, single guy going up, you know, in a, in a bar. I'm thinking of myself. And, you know, the other problem is... Like a lot, I mean, I don't know. I was like the worst geek in high schools on the debating team, you know, braces, giant glasses. And in my mind, I'm still sound like, hello, I, I like you. You're pretty. I, you're so pretty. I mm-hmm. So you feel like you have to mask who you are. Yes. I don't feel that voice is not as prevalent anymore. I used to feel like Jerry Lewis, do, like when the Stooges <laughs> doing the spinning thing on the floor, basically. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested in the fact that your therapist thought that – did they think you were narcissistic or they thought you were a narcissist? You know, I, right now I've got a like lay on your back Freudian, you know, classic psychoanalyst or beyond Freud. But anyway, that kind of therapy right. where I lay on the ba- my back and I got somebody sitting behind me and she doesn't really tell me what I am. She How many times like, a week do you do it? Only once. 
I'm not a Ford. Are you? No, no, no. But I know that true analysis was multiple times a week. Yes, I think. yes, um, that's true. And I've I've brought that up. Like, why don't we try it that way? Because I, I think it's a great. It's a journey into your brain, and there's a lot less judgment. Mm-hmm. My last shrink, I walked in there, and the first appointment is like, okay, so you're a narcissist, and here's how we're going to go forward. From what was here. that based on? I think. I, I'm not sure. I still wonder if it's just like to a hammer, everything seems like a nail. And this guy just like, oh, this, he just saw enough about me. Like, well, you're a single guy in New York and you're 30 something and therefore you must be this. Right. Or you, or maybe I have, you know, I, it certainly seems to have fit. You know, the thing about narcissism is it's a, it's a prison. You know, if you think you know everything, then nothing can surprise you. And if mm-hmm. everybody in your life is just a, like I'm describing, which I think is true, if everybody in your life is just a thing, and an object in your way to get what you want, there's, there's just, it's, not, it's, it's not very fun. So, you know, he had me read like, you know, Plato talking, some conversation. He had a whole like intellectual system I walked into. <laughs> Did it help you? I don't know. I, I think he, he actually, he was one of these shrinks who thought, Every relationship that I was in, he made me – he made it seem like I had to stay in it to prove that I was healthy. And I think to some extent he was responsible. That makes or, me want to rip my skin off just hearing that. I feel, I feel so confined. Like the idea that you have to do something to prove to your therapist that you're a certain way. It's, oh. uh, I know. So I, I think it wasn't ultimately – a great thing. I think it because it, it did put me help put me in the mindset of getting engaged and trying to really work on something. Now I do think that there's a lot of people who break up because you know all the sign she has man hands, she has <laughs> all the things that don't matter. Yeah, and I've learned what matters, but I didn't know then, and I wasn't ready to know then. If it felt like, well, if you take away my judgment about, well, she's going to look bad in forty years, or oh, her mother isn't good looking, or. Well, she's got a good ass now, but I, she really likes butter on her popcorn. Like all this crazy <laughs> shit in my head. Um, you know, I didn't know what else. I had nothing else in there. And so now I'm like, oh, this person says she's going to be somewhere on time and she is. That means so much to me. Like, you know, also having a nice ass does. Well, I think when you don't feel a real connection with someone, you don't know what to pay attention to. And that's what it sounds like. I don't know what it was that was preventing you from feeling connections to these people, if that was something in you or if they were just the wrong people for you. But it's when you really feel a connection to someone, you like them, you don't all the, all of a sudden it's like, even though you think maybe I should care about the man hands, you don't. Yes. But, so, but I was finding the having, man hands in everybody. You were. Yeah. Were you not feeling, were you having or, trouble or, connecting? Or, or I'd have these massive crushes. That was the other side of it. I would get these crippling crushes on people who I thought were absolutely perfect. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, she's the great, and I would not lose sleep, and I'd be, you know, there was, there was one who like she came to my apartment once, and you know, we had this great first date. We made out. She she commented on the chocolate band aids that I had, like <laughs> a, a gag, you know, candy. Right. And so then I went and found them, and I like I, I messengered them to her office, and I made it. I didn't put my name on it, and you know, a week went by, I didn't hear anything, and then um, I like. Finally, like, ask her out on a second date. Oh, I, don't, I don't know. I was like, did you get the band-aids? Oh, those are from you? <laughs> and it's like, that's my, that it's kind of pattern. thing would happen over and over again. And so nobody's perfect either. And that's. Yeah. Now, do you have trouble empathizing? The weird thing is I don't get, I don't get a weird feeling from you. And I 
feel, I would think I would get a weird feeling from someone who. I don't think uh, that that person that I'm describing was who I was born to be and who my sort of you know meditative best self is. You know, I, I and I, I don't want to sound like I've achieved some state of you know. Right, you're not Guy Fieri. No, I'm not. You know, I'm <laughs> not fully manifest exactly. <laughs> yeah, but um. I, I'm, thank you for saying that. I, 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 I'm, I don't know. I'm trying to be. What can I say? But I mean, if someone says, if someone is hurt by something you did, now does it, that? How do you feel about that? I think I'm imperfect, and we all are. And it's my responsibility to think about the likelihood that they're right, um, and do what I can to apologize, or you know, whatever, give them money. You know, if, if it's money that is an issue, or whatever it is, however I've screwed up, because I'm imperfect, and I don't. I also, you know. Back then, I would beat myself up over every bat, every wrong word I said to a girl, and a oh, what did I, you know, say that? Or I don't do that anymore because I know I'm, you know, we're all none of us is is perfect. And so, if you had, if I had walked in and you had said you were an asshole to me, I said you were right, and you know what exactly what it was, and I would just go, oh my god, why did I do that? <laughs> well, so it sounds like you were just. <laughs> trying to figure out who you were so much, and some of it was my just... journey, and that's I think why I'm single at my advanced age. I'm not that old, but um, I think it's just taken me a long time to let go of you know, and I'm not still not there, but to let go of a lot of that stuff and to right. grow. My my journey to being coming a decent human took longer than others. All right, now let's talk about the Food Network. Um, what made you want to write this book? I can't tell if the, they um, – um, They love you. I can't – but they're like, oh, here's the boring part about the Food Network. No, um, this is the part they've been waiting for. Okay. Um, wh- why did I write it? Well, when I, when I started on staff at the Times, one of the first stories I wrote was in 2006 about this new trend called food blogging. Mm-hmm. Because there – you know, before people – there was a time before Yelp. <laughs> um, you know, I – they used to only be restaurant critics who would, you know, it would be like two things written about any restaurant if you they were lucky and you would have to, you know, go to the window of the restaurant to figure out what somebody said about it or look in what I call Zajat. <laughs> um, I have a whole Zagat story that I want to write someday. But anyway, um, you know, Google bought it and it's kind of ruined it. I never look at it anymore. That's because so, it's, yeah. you don't look at it because right. it almost doesn't exist. The only print one, the only print the New York one now. And it doesn't really... It's not very reliable. Yelp is better. Well, I I don't know. Anyway, in its day, Zagat was great. But um, what am am I talking about? So, oh, yes. So I wrote this piece about food bloggers. And in that piece were like uh, Lockhart Steele and um, Mm -hmm. the guys that started uh, Eater, Josh Ozersky, who was at Grub Street then, now is running for Esquire, and um, other people, Restaurant Girl, Danielle Freeman, and a whole bunch of – everyone in that article now is like a famous kind of food – semi-famous food writer and – we took a photo of everybody in this new restaurant by this hip young chef called David Chang, who's mm-hmm. now famous. So that was, and I did a whole, I did other pieces along those lines. And then one day I got a call from this guy named Lee Schrager, who's not related to Ian Schrager. And Lee runs the South Beach Food and Wine Festival, which is like the South, the Sundance Festival, the food media business. I went down to Miami in 2008. I mean, basically, I was amazed that my editor let me go down there. But, you know, living in New York, um, a food festival in February is extremely attractive in Miami. Right. So I went down there and I was absolutely amazed to see that people like Rachel Ray and Guy Fieri and um, 
Bobby, and they had entourages and bodyguards. And, and this was the year that Emeril Lagasse had sold his businesses to Martha Stewart for $50 million, $50 million. And as a reporter, I have this like no, um, no Kennedys, no mafia, no World War II policy. Meaning I don't, what? I, I don't write about those things. I think there's enough reporters who are willing to delve into the Warren Commission report yet another time to find a conspiracy in there. Mm -hmm. And I just don't want to do it. I'd rather, just like with Festivus, even though it's a silly comparison, I'd rather write about new territory. Although I do think it's unlikely that that one bullet did all that damage (laughs) in all those directions to JFK. But, um, and so this was just a great new world. And I, I thought, you know, I'm in a position because I've written these other stories. I wrote this piece about, I ended up writing two pieces about Lee for the New York Times. I wrote a piece about John Rosen, the agent, to um, Bobby and Rachel and Giada. And so I had a name. Um, And when I left the Times in 2009, late 2009, I just, you know, there's all these projects I wanted to do. And this just floated to the surface because, first of all, having left the Times, I didn't necessarily want to spend a few years writing this book that I'm still trying to write about an American writer who died in India and my search for her missing final book. I still want to write that book, but I think I wanted to make a splash. And I, so I both recognized that there was a story here to tell, um, an interesting story about how when I was a kid, we didn't know what kale was. <laughs> we didn't know what shallots were. I didn't even know there were chocolate chip cookies that you can make from scratch. Mm-hmm. We, it was Pillsbury, you know, or those boxes that you added an egg and oil to. So... Um, how we got from there to where we are now and, and you know, in this media. And, and just, I was amazed that nobody had written this story before. So anyway, I got a William Morris agent myself, William Morris Endeavor agent myself, and, um, you know, we sold the book. And, and I got the access because people knew about me having covered this area. And was the Food Network cool with you wanting to do the book? Because initially I wondered, so you know Miley... Carpenter. Yes, yeah. Um, she who, was editor of Food Network magazine. Yes. Yeah. So initially I wondered, was this a Food Network, you know, produced book? And then I realized, oh, no, it wasn't. And then I wondered what their relationship to the book was. Well, Food Network is owned 70% by um, Scripps, which is based in Knoxville, Tennessee. It's a pretty conservative company. You'll notice the Travel Channel has become a lot less interesting in the last few years because Scripps bought it. They, um, if if Scripps wrote the official history of Food Network, it would be you know seventeen pages long because they would have redacted everything that would have offended anybody. They're just very careful. Um, it wouldn't be interesting. They've made a few documentaries on the network, and they just take everything out. So, um, at first, there was a very friendly publicist um, named uh, Carrie um, Carrie Welch, and she. She knew that if they really asked for permission all the way up to the top, they would just take forever and never say yes. So when I wrote this freelance piece for The Times about the cooking channel, I went in and sat in on meetings and got to look at research reports and all kinds of access and going around from office to office, interviewing the executives. It was up to me to get the talent because the talent are all freelance Mm. basically. So I had to – that's why I went to all the food festivals. I went there to just like sidle up to Guy. So he got so used to seeing me, he'd eventually feel like he knew me and he would talk to me, you know. Um, and that's how I got all of them mostly. And now, why did Jada not, not give you an interview? You know, I asked Jada that. Jada. I asked her that. And she said, I don't know. Somebody told me not to. Well, who? I don't know. She's and you very, were able I, to let that go? Because that would keep me up 
I, it's no, gonna keep me up tonight. I'm still up. I still want to. <laughs> Who was it? I want to know. Um, you know, at that time, she was really trying to remake herself as a lifestyle queen. Not just she doesn't just want to be a food right. personality. She wants to be an in style magazine because of the way her house is decorated. Mm-hmm. And I and she and Bobby were working on a uh, uh, national talk show. They wanted. They were pitching. Now and also, Bobby's a very controlling dude. And he was talking to me a lot. So he might have just said to her, don't talk to him. You have nothing to win from it. I, I don't know. Bobby's a real interesting character. Yeah, what's character. he like? You know, he grew up basically getting in fights, um, dealing blackjack from stoops in New York City. He's just a New York street smart, savvy kid. He was a great basketball player on the playgrounds. And that's who he is now. He just knows how to – he looks at you with these icy blue eyes. He sizes you up figures out how to get what he wants out of you, and he does it. And he, so he's you. He's me, but he's good at it. <laughs> I was never good at it. He, he's genuinely fun and nice to talk to. So he's – when he wants to be. You know, so so he's, he's very calculated. He's very calculated. Calculating. Yes. You know, I just never – it's funny. He's, he's one of those who I like, is, he, is Bobby – you know, because I could like text him and is – He's not my friend, but is he, you know, I've gone on dates to his restaurants and he'll come out and give a big show to like impress. Bobby's, nice. Bobby's good at impressing the females too. Mm-hmm. He's on his third wife. So he does know he something. Is. He's not with the yes, woman still who with played. Her. Yes. Alex. Yes. Oh. On That's his third wife. S- on, on, yeah, SVU, yeah. Yeah. Alex. He was married briefly March. to a Stephanie sh- March. Stephanie March. Yeah. Stephanie is lovely. Um, very, she's now like running a little cosmetic store in Soho, but, um, he was married to a chef in like 1990, didn't last. And then he got married to this – in the early days of Food Network, they had this talk show with Robin Leach. Was that – Talking food. Yeah. OK. Of lifestyles of the rich and famous. <laughs> and uh, his sidekick was um, – actually, her real name was, was Robin, but they changed her name to Kate for the show. And Bobby met her on the set. Sparks flew – um, and um, they got married, and eight months later, a baby came out. Mm-hmm. And um, but it could just be a premature baby. I'm not sure. And, <laughs> right, um, I'm sure that's what it was. But that's his only child. And so, and I met her, and she's very nice. But but yeah, he's on his third wife. So anyway, he knows how to you know he's he's good with the ladies. So he's always up for helping in that area. What's Rachel Ray like? Did you interview her? Oh yeah, Rachel is a shockingly hard worker and always was. You know, like a lot of them, she grew up in um, a house of divorce and, um, you know, so many of them have this thing where they just try to make the world right by putting something beautiful on the plate. I think as they grew up in chaotic situations. Her mom managed Howard Johnson's restaurants. Um, Rachel spent her summers working, you know, wearing the unbreathable brown and um, Mm -hmm. orange uniform. She was working at the candy apple counter. I mean, I could tell you her whole story, but it's all in the book. But she's she's a she is a an amazing performer. I I went to watch thirty minute meals being made, and she did it in like thirty four minutes. <laughs> and I ate the food, and it was good. And she really does that in that time. And I went to see Anne Burrell, who's the one with the spiky mm-hmm. blonde hair, and it took her nine hours to make two half hours. Wow. Okay. Now, why she claims she was hungover? Why does Rachel Ray occasionally? rub me the wrong way because I'm sure she's very like the more I learn about her the more I think I should support her yeah. I do support her she seems very nice but there's something manic about her maybe or forced she's, or... I notice over the last couple since I've known her now I've been doing these stories for like six years she's grown 
You know, that it's, someone t- I met Bill Murray recently, and they said he talks at you. <laughs> now, I'd always, you know, I'm like everybody else. I'm a huge Bill Murray fan. But I could see, I think celebrities, I think so much is asked of them, and they just, I think she's... I think she works so hard and she gets so little sleep and she's just out of her mind. Okay. And I think that's that's what what it is. is. I think that's what the manic thing is. She's – at the same time, everybody seems to come to a crash now. Maybe that's where she's headed. It's just too much and she's been on, on, on for now, you know, 15 years basically. Yeah, you get the sense, I guess, that she's on. She's always on, yeah. Is she on when she's off? You know, she's got a – you know, she basically goes upstate to – you know, on the weekends and spends time with her husband and her mom. And maybe when she's up there, she chills out. Mm-hmm. I've rarely seen her in an unchilled out state. She's always very nice to me. She's one that she remembers my that the first time I met her, I put my mom on the phone with her <laughs> and she asked my mom what she made for dinner. And she'd always ask me about my mother. So she's, she remembers people, but. I know that one time I did a, I used to do a really early morning weekend TV spot every Saturday morning um, on on uh, NBC in New York and there was one night and so I'd have to I would get up at five and I would usually I forget what time I'd try to go to bed by but there was one night at the beginning I would like begin I was so careful to always go to sleep early and and as as because I did it for three years and so as it went on I was like oh I can go out I just have to be home by a certain time and there was one time where it's like I was out late I probably got like an hour and a half, if even that, of sleep. I got up. I was still I, You're shaking. kind of yeah. in an altered state. But I overcompensated so much that I had the most energy you've ever seen at that time of the morning. And I'm beginning to wonder if that's what Rachel Ray is doing. In, like, in the book, she's tired. I think in the book, I, there's a story where the current president of Food Network, Brooke Johnson, when she first met Rachel, went out drinking with her. And, you know, three drinks in, Brooke realizes she cannot handle this and is in danger of vomiting over the big star. And Rachel's just getting started. And, <laughs> you know, Brooke says, don't try to keep out drinking with Rachel Ray. So it could be that there's, you know, compensation. And I, I do get, you know, and I, I, I like Rachel and I, you know, hope that she does find some peace. It does not seem – she does not seem very centered right now. Though I saw her a few weeks ago and it was – it was like that. She's she's almost gotten this hardness to her. So what you're saying is she's drunk when she does her show? I don't <laughs> <laughs> I don't think she's drunk when she does her show. I do think that it's possible the night before she's enjoyed some of the good life of being a food celebrity. But I don't know. Yeah. I'm not All rushing right. to drink. Who else should we talk about? Paula Dean? We can. It's funny, people are asking me less and less about Paula Dean. I always, you know, I have all my my canned stories about her if you want them and I'll tell them. But but it's what's interesting is well when you present them like that it's so so great. <laughs> How can I but resist? I know. <laughs> but you know the, the thing, uh, the 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 story and you know that like to sum it up like the diabetes thing was way worse in some ways than the N word thing. But I think the the what crisis was the management. Thing? All right. So <laughs> a year before the N word controversy. Um, she goes on the Today Show and tells Al Roker in the world that she actually has been suffering, suffering from diabetes and she recommends this one treatment that turns out she got paid about $6 million to endorse. Oh. And she's all of a sudden got this website where she'll teach you how to cook, you know, low-fat plum something. 
And it then and she did not tell the Food Network about any of this. Mm. And the Food Network had a whole year, a season of episodes of her canned where she's like Miss Butter and Sugar. Right. Um, and there's a whole backstory. Her agent had kept the Food Network away from any of her endorsement deals. They didn't take any piece of her. So they didn't have much interest in her except as selling commercials and her getting good ratings. All of a sudden, it's like watching Leaving Las Vegas. It used to be she was this wonderful, indulgent, grandmotherly figure. And by the way, a great storyteller, very smart woman in a lot of ways. Um, and then it just turns into, wait, don't eat all that sugar. You're going to die. It's not yeah. fun anymore. Right. And that hurt her rating. So by the time this controversy came around, her contract was up. They weren't collecting any part of her um, you know, endorsement deals for Paula Deen mattresses and Paula Deen toaster muffins or et cetera, et cetera. It was easy for them to let, let her go. Um, the amazing thing is how bad you know you. When, now, now I've been in the journalism business for so long. I have friends. I had a friend who was a, a QVC host who fainted on the air, and she called me all upset. And I just like you got to call Jay. You got to call this guy Jay. Oh, I know he does crisis communications. You know, and she called Jay. He got it on the Today Show the next day. He made it right. There's a there's people in New York who know how to handle this when you screw up. Mm-hmm. It's like nobody told her to call the number or. Character is destiny, you know, and an editor who uh, once worked at Life and Style magazine briefly, that tabloid. <laughs> yes, I know. And, um, and, and I had barely even heard of any – but she said to me about – I was like, why is Britney Spears doing these things? You don't understand, this editor told me. This is something from the swamp. About Britney Spears? Yes. Wow. And it's, I was like, you know – That gives kinda, me chills. It's so cold. It's cold, but it kind of explains like some of the, what's going on in that. And I think in Paula Deen's case, you know – oh. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. Are you a Britney I, it, fan? No, I'm not. I don't but... say anything bad about Joe <laughs> or Blair, you know. No, it's totally fine, but it's just – it's like – It's so cold it's and so, journalistic. Yeah, and, yeah, exactly. It's so – it's like out of the devil wears Prada or something. Yes. Well – it's such a it's, That's real. it's almost like yeah it's just what it's the worst of what you expect New York journalists to be like even though I think life and style is in Connecticut it's maybe. in no it's in like right over the bridge and like um with uh, T-neck or one of those little right, right over it's the not George Washington bridge yeah but um I think about Paula Dean you know who who overcame a lot you know she was an agoraphobic she started her business with like $40 and her son's delivering sandwiches and a great american success story but ultimately you know, have you seen her volunteering in any black churches? You know, it's totally cynical, but this mm-hmm. is how it's done. You get in trouble for saying the wrong thing. You need the news cameras to see you, you know, serving meals at Thanksgiving or whatever, and you haven't seen any of it. Right. What do you make of that? I, ma- I, I make of it a person, Paula Dean, who I liked and who I thought was very honest. Um, I tend to think this is actually showing who she really is. Maybe she really is racist. Maybe that was. Maybe that really is her thoughts. Right. You, because if she wasn't, she would be trying to change it. Her yeah. image. Oh, and also, I and I also think just, you know, she surrounded herself. She has an inability to listen, and she's obviously just surrounded herself by a team that is not doing the job. And the PR guy that she had, this guy, I, I always do. I'm not going to name. I would, <laughs> but um. Right after all this, he, they were the most inept. They were L.A. based, which in this kind of thing with the media problem, you need a New York kind of uh, you know savvy PR person to handle all of us sharks over there. <laughs> right. Um, there's a whole that's a whole other story. The difference between L.A. publicists and New York publicists. That's interesting. I haven't thought about well, that. L.A. publicists are all about um, you're either 
sitting in the hotel room doing the puff piece or your TMZ. Mm -hmm. There's like no difference. And if you're not willing to do exactly what they want, your TMZ. And I know there's a big problem with on every street corner here, there's 50 paparazzi. It's insane. The airport, they're just waiting. Yeah. But, um, and it's not true in New York quite as much. So they don't have to be as defensive. But in New York, there's a little more like, okay, I understand who you are and what you need. Let me see if I can give you something. To me, there's more of that. Right. Um, They're more powerful out here, right? Would you say that? They think they're more powerful they because they're guarding they're the, yeah. the, the royalty of America, the, the Hollywood right. stars. Exactly. Um, yeah, whereas, you know, in New York, the, there's different levels of fame and need. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know. I just think that the quality of the people around her and, you know, it's like um, she grew up in a family which she would describe as pretty dysfunctional and it's like she recreated that dysfunction around her. And so I think that she's proven un- unable to be a real business person and it's good in a way that Walmart wasn't in business with her mm-hmm. if you're if you're into Walmart doing well <laughs> and I'm not saying I am but and uh, and I think maybe there's truth to to what people think about her if she's unable to to change to, to do what she needs to do right and now she's gone the Glenn Beck route right you pay te- you can pay oh, ten dollars right. a month to subscribe thing, to her yeah, yeah. who else oh. what other what other food network personalities should we talk about well People forget that Bourdain, Anthony Bourdain, started on Food Network. I had forgotten. He his first show was called The Cooks Tour. After No Reservations came out, uh, the book, the um, sorry, Kitchen Confidential came out. Great book. You know, he's an amazing writer. The funny thing about interviewing him was he's in my turf. He scared me. You know, all these other people, it's like you do. They do what they do. I do what I do. But I was like, oh, you're probably a better writer than <laughs> I am. And, you know, you're just – he was scary. But he's actually a very gentle guy in most many ways. But um, anyway, the Food Network approached him and he thought, you know, he'd already written – he'd already called Emeril an Ewok. (laughs) And um, Ewoks really are like the worst thing to ever – I I would take Jar Jar Binks any day over the Ewoks. Gary's not listening. Um, (laughs) I'm absolutely listening. Jar Jar Binks or Ewoks, which would you – if you had to spend time with one – well, Ewoks aren't racist. I don't. Ewoks are cute. Yeah, Ewok. No just... way. They do, they should be clubs. I don't know. Ewok I feel like cuddly. I feel like Jar Jar Binks would be more interesting to talk to because I would have. I, a, I agree. An easier time communicating. Those with stupid dead eyed teddy bears. But haven't they seen more? I don't know. I like Jar Jar. Plus, he get you high. Well, I'm not against that. I you know I I think that if we're gonna bring it into it, I would like to spend time with the Black Stormtrooper. That just came mm. out in the trailer. Oh, that trailer. There you go. Mm. Allison has no idea what we're talking about. Did no, you I know, know? I know what you're talking about. I just I was, don't it's care. Al, it's the Allison Rosen show. Let's focus on what she was interested in. <laughs> no, you. it's called Allison Rosen is your new best friend, and that's, that's you. Uh, yeah, so therefore, right. we should be focusing on you. Right. So anyway, he I mean, he called Emerald an Ewok. I'm I'm hoping that I'm hoping that the Cal Bears get into the Rose Bowl someday soon in football. That's I'm my, sorry, that's what the, I'm the way you froze right there was so funny to me and Kalen. <laughs> the way Alan froze? Yeah, right after we were like, we should be focusing on you. You were just, he just it's like, oh, I can do anything I want, uh, and it says Adam Carolla. Like you could see the cogs going in his head of like, what, <laughs> what can, can I get say? away with? Right. What can I do here? <laughs> right. Anyway, he called him Ronnie Walk, and um, he was he didn't he couldn't believe they wanted him on the air, and so. Um, they put. They gave him this show for two years, uh, Cook's Tour, which was based on the book he was writing at the time. And it's basically the same crew and the same show he's doing now on CNN. Um, but after two years, at this point, the network, which had not made money for its first, like, decade. It started in 93, by the way. We haven't, like, told all the basics, but whatever. Read, read the book. Um, 
And um, I took a lot of those pictures. Oh, yeah. I'm looking at the pictures in the book. Very cool. Thank you. Um, not all I'm thinking. So, um, and after two years, the network was now making more money. Scripps, this conservative company, which was the corporate parent, said, um, you know, the ratings are better when you visited, said this to Bourdain, when you visited the barbecue joints in the American South than when you visited like Ho Chi Minh City and drank Cobra Poison. Why don't you just uh, travel around America and, and visit barbecue joints? Basically, they wanted him to become Guy Fieri before there was a Guy Fieri. Mm-hmm. And yes, it's Fieri. <laughs> um, <laughs> I know. He was born Guy Ferry. Oh, really? Yes, that was his name. I Guy didn't Ferry. know that. Does Chris know that? He, yeah, I think he does. He <laughs> changed his name when he got married to supposedly an ancestral name, oh. which I'm sure in Italy it's not Fieri. It's like, right. eh, you know. <laughs> um, Guy Ferry. <clears throat> so, anyway. Um, at this po- so after two years, when they said, we don't want you traveling internationally, Bourdain said, well, I have this deal to make a documentary on Ferran Audrey, the Spanish chef we talked about. And they said, we're not interested. He told them to go to hell. If, you, if I can't do it my way, I'm not interested. And that's, you know, he's a courageous guy to say no to a television network that's willing to renew him if he does it their way. So he went to, he, he made that documentary. That became the pilot for the um, the um, Travel Channel show, No Reservations. Mm-hmm. And then when Scripps bought Travel Channel, he ends up on CNN making the best show he's made. And so there's a fearlessness to him, but he can get away with it because he's so damn talented. I used to like Next Food Network star a uh, lot. Yes. That used to be like my favorite show. I would get so excited. And I, I lost interest in it. I don't know why. When? Who was the last person you remember winning? Melissa Dearabian. Right. Well, that's a long time ago. Yeah. I really love – I mean I, I would watch it every now and again, but – I think when they started, they started turning him into teams, right? Like they almost made it like there was a little bit more. Was, they changed the format every yeah. year, which is annoying. You never know where you stand. But I liked when it just one person won. <laughs> no, it's still one person winning, but at the end of this, at the end of the year. But the problem, if you look at you know Food Network, Guy Fieri won Food Network Star in two thousand six. That was the second season, right? Yes. Who won the first season? Um, Someone that never did anything, right? Yeah, there's a woman. I want to say it was not the Hardy Boys. The Hardy Boys, I think, won after that. Um, is a woman who ended up moving to France and not being interested in having a show. Yeah. But, but Guy in 2006 was the last real star that was created by the show. Right. The only. Yes, the right? only big star. I mean, there's Artie. Artie yeah. Party. Artie Party. Who remembers? She didn't Artie win Sakara. though, did she? She did win. Oh, she did win. Okay. And she, but she's, so she's around. But most, you know, most people, in, everyone knows who Guy so Fieri is. So I saw that is. season then, yeah. Yes, I, I watched that season too. Season one was Dan Smith and Steve Yes, McDonald. the Hardy Boys, mm-hmm. I believe. And then th- maybe the third season was this French woman. Amy Finley? Yeah. Uh, nope, she's not uh, French. She won, yeah. but she was from San Diego. In season f- four, it was someone from Jersey? I think. But five, it, Texas? It wasn't a French person. It was It was a person who moved to France. Sorry. Anyway, I'm sorry they don't have every season yeah. down, but but That's let me. Okay. But the 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 point is that you know, a guy named Jeff Morrow won a few years ago, The Sandwich King. So he's on this Saturday show that they have. Um, but two things people always bring up: Justin Warner, who won about three years ago, and he was supposed to be like this new wonder kid. Alton Brown was going to be mentoring him. Mm. And the Food Network has been unable to find anything to do with him. He wants. Yeah, to... I feel like the people that win, they don't do anything with them anymore. Because they, all right, the 
after 9-11, 9-11 was like the best thing that happened to the network. It was a horrible <laughs> thing. I was in New York. I'm pretty sure you were, too. It was. A t- uh, I wasn't there yet, okay. though. But I a, feel like I know where you're going to go with this. It was a terrible yes. thing. And people wanted cocooning. They wanted right. to go back. I and began get... cooking. I'm, right. I don't cook a lot, but I began baking Yes, people got married to their exes, yeah. you know, and, and everything. And uh, Rachel Ray's show, 30-Minute Meals, started November 2001. It was like the breadcrumbs to find your way back to the <laughs> kitchen. And that was when they, they, they went whole hog. This is when you get Paul. Dean on the network, Giada, Sandra Lee, the, you know, the hell spawn of whatever Anthony Bourdain calls her. <laughs> um, and uh, even the Barefoot Contessa gets on the network at that point. And um, that was sort of the prime period of the network. They thought they were just creating household names. They, they had the formula down. They had a great b- a media department. People were so into it. Bourdain had his show on. Emerald Live was still on all the time. You know, bam. And then they get rid of Emerald in 2007 because they think, oh, we're on a winning streak that's never going to end. And now they still get ratings. They still make money. They still sell a lot of Lexuses. Mm. But they're not anymore this kind of um, chance-taking. You know, in, in the old days, they put a show – they put Iron Chef Japan on this network, a dubbed, weird Japanese <laughs> show, right? They right. would never try anything that crazy now. They've just become like every other TV network. They're waiting for the for the next, um, you know, Duck Dynasty to walk in the door and pitch itself. And they would say no to that because it's too crazy. So Justin and Warner. And that's Bob, who's the non-risk taker, Bob Tushman. Yes. Who I know because I don't know him, but just from watching Next Food Network. Yes, Star. he is. He has. Bob Tushman is the one who supposedly semi-discovered Rachel Ray. And he's the one responsible for a lot of these names back 15, 10, 15 years ago. And yeah, he's well known in the business for not being interested in interesting ideas. And I'm sure, you know, if he was listening, he would dispute that. But, <laughs> you know, and you can, yeah, he's the gray haired dour guy on Food Network stuff. Well, what about Susie? She seems fun. Just go out late with Susie. You'll have a good time. That seems like I would. Um, and you know what I would do before I went out late? I would probably cook something that was sent to me by Blue Apron. Do you know Blue Apron, Alan? I am so excited to try it based on listening to your show and getting yes, excited about so it. Yes, it's so cool. So what they do is they send you all the ingredients you need to make a delicious, healthy meal. Uh, and they the ingredients are all measured out so you get the exact amount you need. So basically you can be – I've actually mentioned Rachel Ray when trying to describe this before. I've talked about how you see someone on TV and they have all the ingredients they need and they're all in little dishes. Yeah. And like I feel like I could be a great cook if I had that going on. Well, that's what Blue Apron will turn you into. Uh, ordering out is expensive and gets unhealthy fast. And who knows how long that food in the grocery store has been sitting on shelves or how far it had to travel. Forget all of that. You need Blue Apron to make cooking fresh, delicious, and easy. And here's how it works. For $9.99 a meal, Blue Apron will send you a refrigerated box with all the right ingredients in the exact right proportions and simple step-by-step recipe instructions right to your door. And the instructions are super easy. There's like pictures and they make it very, very simple and And can I jump in just a second since we're talking about Food Network? The thing that pisses me off about Food Network so much is that I want to cook and I want to cook that way where I walk out onto a stage and everything's in a little dish exactly how much I need and I just dump it in and then that's it and there's no cleanup. It – this is that's what Blue Apron is. You have to put it into the little dish yourself, but it comes in a little bag in the refrigerated box. Labeled. It's exactly how much yeah. you need. It's all labeled. You just go, and then at the end, you throw it all away, and that's that. I like, actually now I'm remembering my friend Lisa actually did do this, and she's not a cook mostly, and it worked. Yeah, it's 
It's not hard. No. I fucking do it, and, and I can't cook. And the meals come out, and they're so good, and they're super impressive. Stuff like chicken and chestnut pasta with cabbage, roasted chestnuts and granulated honey, braised Moroccan-style salmon and greens with oh, what quick do you preserved like, Allison? lemon, pine nuts, and red quinoa, flat iron steaks with beef, beef frica salad and gorgonzola. Just a few of the things. Meals are only 500 to 700 calories per serving, though you'd never guess it. So you guys need to do this. And you can get your first two meals free by going to blueapron.com slash Allison. Two meals free just for going to blueapron.com slash Allison. Okay. You know, you know what I think actually is it's not the it's not the measuring. It's the shopping. Yes. Good good cooking is good shopping. You need to prepare. Yeah. And Blue Apron makes I, But that I mean, all it's, it's so easy. much easier with Blue Apron. For me, one of my biggest obstacles is the cleaning. Yes. I can get through the act yeah. of making it, eating it, and then three days go by, and I'm like, well, I should really do something about that. Yeah. And then I go to I have to the work. same problem. So I like that with Blue Apron, I can just kind of use everything that I need, and then it kind of all just – I can dump stuff in the trash. I'm just thrilled that you there. have advertisers and that – Well, know, thank you. It's just such – it's hard to get advertiser for podcasts. Um, I do something called New Books and Food now and then, and there's a whole part of this whole New Books network, and it's, uh, it's a big deal. What is New Books and Food? I interview – Authors of new books and food. <laughs> and where – and is this my part friend, of the podcast my, Yeah, my friend Marshall has this thing called the New Books Network. There's like 80 or 90 different categories, new books in psychoanalysis, new oh. books in drug studies, new books in – you know, it's a lot of academic areas. But it's actually it's amazing catalog. And he has, he has so many podcasts and they get like 5, 10, 15,000 downloads, like a lot, a good number – but it's like each one's only getting right. 15, 20. I've interviewed some great people. Ruth Reichel is, I've done and Gabrielle Hamilton. And, um, but it's uh, – I don't have any advertisers. And are these on iTunes? Yeah. Yeah, totally. New Books Network. Check it out. All right. Everyone New check Books that Network. out. Newbooksnetwork.com. You know, I'm remembering the last season of Food Network Star that I watched had – maybe the second to last. There was this – Woman who like, I want to say her name was Kelsey or something, and she taught Kelsey you, Nixon. Yes, yeah, and she didn't win. But then they went on to do something with her. Yes, which season was that? Was that the? I don't know exactly. It was probably at least five years ago. Yeah, she's extremely cute. She is cute. Yes, and that's really important. I feel like you like her. I have a weakness for those little petite shixes. Gotcha. But but I also like a nice. Dark haired Jewess. You know, are you even Jewish? Like I remember this I'm coming Jewish-ish. up on the Corolla show. I and, am, but I know, didn't know. It's this is a ridiculously ridiculous story. I'll make it very short. This is the part. It you won't be able to believe this because it seems unbelievable. But I didn't know I was Jewish until I was in my early twenties, um, and it's like, well, how did I? How did I not know? And that's a whole ridiculous long story. But so anyway, I was raised. Not knowing anything about it, still don't know very much about it. But I mean, yes, I am, I guess. Except that then people will say, actually, not people. Um, people will no. People will say, but it's a religion. So, yeah, but the thing word. is, it's like, well, but to anti semites, it's not just a religion. That's right. And then also to like hardcore Jews, it's not right. Just which a religion. should be defined by anti semites, but right. yes, it's a so culture. I don't know. It, it's not just it's not just a religion. It's a it's a it's a love of you know learning and it's, it's a it's a thing. It's a way of it is more than things. just yeah. I mean, it's a and also a love of Woody Allen and Bob Dylan and things like that. 
And there are certain diseases that Jews get more than others. So, I mean, it actually is yeah, kind, yes. of an, yeah, it is kind of an ethnicity in that sense. Okay, let's do Just Me or Everyone. Sometimes I ponder on something I have thought or done. Is it just me or everyone? All right. Derek Damon says, I enjoy washing watermelon because it's so big. I feel like I'm giving it a bath. I've never had that feeling, I, but I, I can t- understand it. Absolutely. You can, it's like a dog. I just washed my brother's dog. And uh, it is, you get your arm. It's a weight to it. It's like yeah. it leans against you. I feel like a watermelon would be easier to wash than a dog. Uh, Depending on the dog. If a docile dog, you, fur gives you something to grip onto, whereas a watermelon slippery. That's true. I don't even like eating watermelon. I prefer washing it. Marilyn T. says, find it super annoying when people in their teens and 20s refer to contemporaries as kid, e.g. I love this kid. Yes, I didn't notice that. I had never encountered that until I went to college. And I don't know if it's regional, but a lot of people in college would refer to other peers as kid. Uh, I think maybe it's an East Coast thing, even though I went to college out here. But how do you feel about now when somebody much older than you refers to you as kid when you're not anywhere near a kid anymore? I actually think it's sort of endearing. I kind of like it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I really do like it. But I'll find myself – I find myself guilty of this. I think it is an East Coast thing. It wasn't anything that ever really occurred to me when I lived in California, but all my friends in college were New Yorkers, and that was – and I found myself shortly after college referring to people five, six years older than me as a kid. Yeah, it's weird. It always sounded weird to me at the beginning, but now I, I guess I'm kind well, of used to it. Well, the problem with me now, in being having grown up here and living in New York, is I still call people dude. And I have every right <laughs> to the word dude. I was in the Valley in the yeah. 80s, okay? I, You're I, a regular I, I knew shore. Jess Piccoli. Oh, yeah. I mean, the first time I said gnarly out loud at college, oh, yeah. it, it was like a problem. Like, there was a meeting. <laughs> yeah. There really was. Like, I say it was rad. Like, I always say rad. It was a like, lot. you know, John opened the door and he was like, get in here. Like, and there was like, there was a talk. It was, you know. Uh, Sooner Magic says, I get irrationally angry when I drop something, pick it up and drop it and immediately drop it again. Yes, I hate that. And I do that all the time with dog poop bags. They come on a roll and they're always unfurling and I'm picking them up and dropping them again. I think it's because you're, you've already figured out – your brain is corrected to pick it up properly based on your distance from it the first time. Yes. So now you're closer to yes, it. Yes, you're you, so right. And your math is wrong. You, and then you're, you're just exactly like, oh, right. I've got to focus on this. I don't want to put this much brain power into fix, picking this thing up. I never thought of it that way, but that you're totally right. Jason S. says, I drink straight from the two-liter sodas in my fridge. Guess be damned. Yeah, I'll do that. I don't have two-liter sodas. I don't often either, but I would. I avoid the two-liter soda too. But no, I... I would not do that not because I would do it, guess be damned, but I wouldn't do that because the way they make two-liter sodas now, especially like the Coke ones that are shaped like a massive Coke bottle, that you're, you're just asking for trouble. Like, yeah, you're, you're like – You tilt it and it's just like – like shoot down your throat and like you'll yeah. have like an explosion. It's like siphoning gasoline from a – or something. Yeah, a weird pressure problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Occasionally it'll happen that I'll need to take a pill and there won't be any liquid nearby, so I'll just drink – I'll just yeah. take it with milk, which is kind of icky, but it's like the nearest thing. Because I'll put the pill in my mouth and I'm like, oh, damn it. I should have had like water or something out. Um, and then I'll just – I'll drink that straight from the carton. What about Aren't drinking you? from other people's fridges? There are two liters. No. I don't find – no. I don't find myself in that situation often. Not unless it was a severely intimate situation. Yeah. 
But aren't you aren't you supposed to take a lot of pills with milk, like as a substitute for food? Like if you're supposed to take some, am I insane? Oh, no, you're not insane. Like if you're I've supposed to that. take a pill on, on with food with and food, you can't, yeah, then milk is a good thing to slow yeah. down the absorption. Unless you're Jewish, right? Yeah. Kristen W says, "Just mirror every everyone. Every time I get coupons at the grocery store, I promise myself I'll save them, get organized, and use them. Then never do. Yes, there's." There's too many of those little printed coupons floating around my purse. I've never once used them. They're just trash. When my father died and I came into possession of his wallet, in the wallet were these like Daily Grill $20 <laughs> card, you know, a whole bunch of like, oh, you wow. know, to so be you're named later. you had a great dinner? <laughs> I'm still holding the damn thing. I bring it to LA with me every time I come and I still haven't gone to it. Do you miss your dad? I do miss him. Yeah, it's, you know, it's... I'm not going to say anything original, but it, he was a pain in the ass in many ways, but he, you know, loved Chinese food and the things he loved. And I walked past a new Chinese restaurant. I'm still like, I got to uh, yeah. tell him. How'd he die? It was a weird, basically, he got some kind of infection that they said was meningitis, but never figured out what it was. And he got better. He got worse. He got, it was unclear. It was not indicated he was going to die. And then all of a sudden... He was at UCLA. He was living in Palm Springs. We got him to UCLA, and then he just had an aneurysm in the hospital. Oh, it was pretty. He so was seventy six. Yeah, he was playing tennis up until you know a few months before. Mm. Where were you when you were you there? I was. Um, I was there when he actually passed away. But um, I was. I came back and forth a little bit while he was sick. But I was working on my book. And actually, I thought it was going to get better, and I'd come to Palm Springs. I, I had a place that I worked at in Palm Springs, a great cafe there. And uh, But then the day I handed in the book, I had jury duty that I'd put off as long as I could. I sent my book in to my publisher from the courthouse, and then they let us off at like 3 o'clock that day. And I was like, woo, I'm, I turned in my book. My life is good, you know? And then like 3 o'clock that morning. Aww. I got the call from my brother, dad, you know, the, the doctors, they're saying that if they don't do this, he's going to die. And, and then, you know, six that morning, JFK, you know, they, when they still had a, what do you call it, a grieving ticket, which they don't have anymore, right. you know, and it was it was a bad scene. Mm. Uh, moving on. super awkward yes. <laughs> transition. I'm fine with it. I'm, I grant you an awkward transition. It's just it's interesting, the timing of having, like, I wonder if that's better. Well, that the book's dedicated your... to him. Turned your book in. In a way, if you hadn't turned your book in, it would have been hard mm. to get it finished, I bet. That's you know? true. Um, Addie says, when I ride <clears throat> public transportation, I think about that bus of people being the – excuse me. Let me start over again. Addie says, when I ride public transportation, I think about that bus of people being the only humans left on earth and who to befriend. No, but I do kind of look at everyone. <laughs> I know what these guys are thinking. We don't think that. What we think is, if this is the last cargo of people, who are we going to shtup? No? Is that what you think? Yeah. So you look around. I mean, unfortunately, you get on a bus and, and uh, you know, I wish I didn't do this. I wish I could just look around and see, oh, here's a nice cargo of humans and we're all doing what we're doing. And uh, I think a no, lot of guys do that, I though. survey the scene. You know, it's like if this if this bus is going down into the ocean... I want to be a member of the 10-foot high club. <laughs> Tanya says, just mirror everyone. Worry about earthquakes occurring only when cleaning my ears with a cotton swab. No, Just I... smear everyone. Live in Southern California. I've never worried about it. Yeah, I guess you just don't worry about it. You just, just get used to it. It just is. But you're not supposed to clean your ears with a cotton swab. Yeah, That's but who true. doesn't? I don't. I don't. You don't? No, I've learned the hard way. 
Oh, did you puncture your ear or something? No, but there are other things that can happen that I don't really want to gross everyone out with. But I like had to have my ears flushed out a few times, and I was told that was why. And after the second time, yeah. I started to believe him. Huh. Well, there you go. Eric Welsh says, believes that people who call toilets commodes are better than I am. Oh, I don't think they're better. I think they're a little pretentious. That that was from like the newlywed game. Bob Eubanks used to refer to the commode. I don't hear a lot about commodes. No. I, I, by the way, I only worry about earthquakes when I'm performing at Briss. Is it too, <laughs> did I miss that opportunity for that joke? That's okay. okay. There you go. And John M. says, and this is the last one, bugged the crap out of me when Adam kept calling it just me or everybody on his show the other night. Um... No, it didn't really bother me. I I appreciated that we were doing. We did this segment a few times, and we still we occasionally do this segment on the Adam Carolla show. I mean, yes, it's just me or everyone, but it didn't bug me. Did it bug you, Gary? Uh, no, I was impressed that he was getting it eighty five percent right. Yeah, because oftentimes people will be like, "Let's do you know just me or anyone else." Yeah, I is mean, it ju- just me or is it just me or anyone else? And I'll he talks that. about the Twitter and you know the Facebook. The ways, the, the ways was killing you when we were driving yeah. to Portland or Seattle or wherever we were going. We were driving to Seattle from Portland, and he was calling it the ways, and you were losing your mind. Yeah, that was <laughs> isn't rough. Every, isn't every Adam Carolla show just me or everybody? Isn't that First of all, it's called Just Me or Everyone. Everyone? <laughs> right. um, no, yeah, it is. It's sort of that. It is, but it's, it's like, just, I... Is this only annoying me or is it... You know. It's it's weird. I think it's... Kind of. When you live and work with Adam the way Allison and I do, there's shit, there's shit that bugs us that would never occur to a listener. Mm. And shit like this, which I'm sure is, he's not the only person who that occurred who, to, yeah. didn't even... I, it never even crossed my mind. Exactly. I was just... I was impressed that he was getting most of it right and that we were doing the bit as opposed to him reading what the Just Me or Everyone was and taking it off into a 45-minute tangent that wasn't about this. Right, which could have happened. Probably will happen at some point. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what you guys should do in the meantime? You should check out the brand new trailer for the R-rated comedy Unfinished Business. It stars Vince Vaughn, Dave Franco, uh, that is James Franco's brother and Tom Wilkinson, among others, a small business owner and two associates travel to Europe to close the most important deal of their lives. But it all goes perfectly as planned. Not really. It all goes off the rails uh, and it looks to be very funny. So search Unfinished Business Movie to watch the Red Band trailer. It's online now. Did you enjoy the trailer? I think people should watch the trailer. I think they will gain valuable information from the trailer. I think it's unfortunate that the Franco brother does not have to chew a limb off in this film. Hold on. You're speculating. We've only seen the trailer. That's true. Right. In the trailer. Yeah. Maybe that's I'm hoping the key does, scene yes, that they don't want to include. Every in the... movie that a Franco is in right. has to be exactly. a decision made between your life and it's taking a, off a limb. It's an interesting trailer. There's a wheelbarrow move in there. That's there's, all some, there's some funny stuff in the trailer. Because that's what we've seen. Yeah. We, you know what? We have unfinished business. Ooh, so good. That was really, wow. So search unfinished business movie to watch the trailer. It's online now. Alan Salkin, thank you so much for coming on the show. I could do this for, um, people couldn't listen, but I could do it for three more hours. <laughs> I'm so thrilled to be here. I really am. And just, I know, I'm such a fan of the whole pirate ship and uh, meeting Adam outside, meeting you, meeting bald Brian. It's that just was a, a highlight? I'm a, I'm just you know, he, he 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 you know made me sign my book over to him and his wife. He's a big Food Network fan, and uh, 
you know, we got a free book. It would be nice if you bought it. Yeah. Well, but, good um, luck with him. It's a treat being here. Thank you. Thank you so much. So everyone go out and get From Scratch, The Uncensored History of the Food Network by Alan Salkin. Click the banner on my website, alisonrosen.com. It doesn't cost you anything extra, but it does help out the show. And thank you guys so much for all of your Amazon support. We have a ringtone available. Hey, 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 go fuck yourself. You can get that by searching Hey, Go Fuck Yourself on your iPhone in the iTunes store. We have two special bonus episodes available recorded live at the LA Podcast Festival. The first one with Doug Benson and Greg Proops. The next one with Doug Benson, musician Matt Costa, and much of the Thursday gang. Those are $1.99 in the comedy album section of the iTunes store. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Allison Rosen. You can follow the show's Twitter feed at A-R-I-Y-M-B-F. You can follow Alan. AlanSalkin.com. A-L-L-E-N. S-A-L-K-I-N. And are you on Twitter? Yes. It's, everything's Alan Salkin. Twitter, okay. Alan Salkin. Instagram, Alan Salkin. And Facebook, slash Salkin. Awesome. So they know about the book. They know about the podcast. Is there anything else you want to plug? Not that there needs to be anything Well, uh, hopefully someday uh, in the future you will see a fictional version of this um, book about a startup, fictional startup uh, food channel in the 90s that it's going to be a wonderful period piece and a lot of hilarity will ensue. And is this going to be a series? A series. Awesome. Well, everyone, keep your eyes peeled for that. And follow Gary on Twitter at G. Patrick Smith and Kaylin. No, I got nothing. Sorry. Oh, you changed it. Aren't we worried you about it? Don't worry. Bastard. Don't worry about me. I used to say I got nothing. And then I said, don't worry about me. That's true. He did. I he know, but. Kaylin's more lively than I pictured. You know, I, God, I, was, worried, I was worried about him. And now I'm not as worried. He. He's impish. Yeah, 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 yeah. He looks you like... You shouldn't be worried. You should be afraid. Young Jack Black, basically. Oh, yeah. A young, thin Jack Black. Yes. I feel like he has a little more energy than I do. No, only But I'll take it. In your Are you voice. trying to own the real no energy thing? No. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> that sounded bitchy of me. Sorry. <clears throat> I just kind of go with the flow, you know? I don't have a lot of energy. I'm just kind of relaxed. You guys get to go home from this. <laughs> they live together. Barely. <laughs> oh, oh my I god! Just, I'm just glad I don't have to clean up after Gary. He sounds like a slob. No, actually, I'm the one that oh. makes yeah. all the mess this and, and, and old cleans it up. I grew up a little bit. Okay, not much. Uh, place looks great, by the way. You'll see when you get home. Clean the whole thing this weekend. Thanks, honey. <laughs> I don't know what I was supposed to say to that. And for more of this delightfulness, you can listen on Thursday because there's a lot of stuff we need to delve into. Thank you again so much for doing the show. Thank you guys for listening. I love you. Goodbye. About the Allison Rosen show. We had a good time, but now we gotta go. Thank you for choosing the Allison Rosen show.
This is Corolla Digital. Now that the show's over, don't forget to check out Blue Apron. Blue Apron sends gourmet recipes and all the fresh ingredients you need to make them right to your door. Go to blueapron.com and see what's on the menu this week. To get your first two meals free, make sure you go to blueapron.com slash Allison. That's blueapron.com slash Allison.